Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. It sure does sound like meat sizzling on a pan. Tastes a lot like meat, too. Cheers. Cheers. Oh, that looks so good. But there's actually no meat to speak of in this patty. This is, in fact, a plant-based patty made by the food startup Beyond Meat that I picked up at a local grocery store and ate with my housemates. I like it. I've never had a fake burger. New to us, but it's all part of a growing trend of high-tech meat alternatives hitting the market. Some made from plants, some grown from living cells in a lab. All attempting to curb the world's love for meat by providing a convincing alternative. But what's really in those patties? And could these mock meats ever become as popular as the real thing? I'm Keith Menconi, this is In Depth, and today on the program, we're going to be speaking with several people at the cutting edge of the emerging field of alternative meats to find answers to all these questions and more. And we're going to start with the most basic question, why go to all the trouble of spending millions of dollars designing a new hamburger patty when, you know, we already have quite a few hamburger patties? Or another way to put it, why would anyone want to reinvent the veal? So what we know to be true is that raising animals for food is a top contributor to climate change. For some answers, I spoke with Bruce Friedrich. He's the executive director of the Good Food Institute. That's a group promoting the advancement of high-tech alternatives to meat. Now, of course, there's the ethical concerns that factory farming raises. We're not going to talk much about that on this program because... Well, I think it's safe to assume all our listeners basically know where they stand there. But Friedrich started off our conversation instead talking about the concern of climate change. According to Friedrich, raising livestock contributes more to climate change globally than all forms of transportation combined. So more climate change than all of the plane travel and car travel and truck travel globally combined. Uh, animal agriculture is a top cause. Friedrich also points to the problem of antibiotic resistance, a problem which the extensive use of antibiotics in the livestock industry just makes worse. And this is leading to antibiotic-resistant superbugs that are slated to be killing more people per year than cancer by the year 2050. Because of these dangers, he says, advocates have been calling for reduced meat consumption for decades. And yet, the amount of meat we eat has actually gone up. So what's to be done? Enter alternative meats. The solution to the problem is to give people the meat that they love, everything that folks like about meat, the taste, the texture, etc., and to do it at a reasonable price. And these plant-based alternatives, because they are so much more efficient, they will, will, as they scale up, cost less. Um, And so this is the solution to the problems of industrial animal agriculture, producing plant-based meat 
and cell-based meat that costs the same or less and tastes the same or better. That's what we're focused on. So that's the promise here. A product so good that it will get us all to go vegan without ever even noticing the switch. Well, barely noticing. We'll be hearing more from Bruce Friedrich later in the program, but let's move on to another question for now. That question, what exactly is new here? You know, we, we've had veggie burgers for decades now. So what exactly is so high tech about these new alternative meats? So there were two kinds of veggie burgers in the past. That right there is David Lipman, who is very qualified to tell us a thing or two about what's in these alternative meat patties because he is the chief science officer of Redwood City-based Impossible Foods. That's the maker of those famous Impossible Burgers, which are, by the way, a competitor of the Beyond Meat Burger patty we tasted earlier in the episode. Uh, Lipman continues with our veggie burger history lesson. There was the ones that really were making no attempt to taste like meat. They were just sort of a tasty kind of thing that you'd have, like a, a veggie patty that you'd cook up. Maybe there was lentils or peas or who knows what in it. Um, there were also a ways back like the Boca burger and so forth, things that were a little bit trying to have some more, more of a chewiness, some more of a char of flavor and so forth. But recently, he says... Things have changed. Um, over the last few years, what we're seeing is with our company and a few others out there, we're really starting to dig in, certainly Impossible Foods is, to make something where you put it on a grill and you grill that thing and you're starting to smell this direct, delicious smell which is being generated as you cook the product. And then when you bite into it, and I like to have it fairly rare, I'll be honest with you, you get that juicy, bloody, incredible flavor that's just that we, we really do crave. So um, I think that the differences in terms of the way the chew is, in terms of the juiciness, and the actual flavor, is just a huge difference. So that's where we are right now. But Lippmann says the vision going forward is even farther reaching. We are going to have fairly soon for some kinds of dishes, for certain things, products that, that people will say this is better. Faux meat that's better than the original. Now that is a tall order. So let's delve into the technology that many are hoping will get us there. So far, we've been talking about plant-based alternatives, but there's another variety to talk about, actual meat grown in a lab. We're talking here about real meat cells, but instead of growing them on living animals, they're grown instead on whatever materials scientists find that work best. This variety is called cultured meat. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there. So we're going to welcome onto the program our last guest for today to help us out. So my name is Ricardo San Martin. We are going to be spending quite a bit of time with Dr. San Martin right now, so let's get well acquainted. He is the research director at the Alternative Meats Lab at the Sujarta Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at UC Berkeley. I asked him to set the table for us by helping us understand the difference between the plant approach to alternative meats and the cultured meat variety. He started us off with the plants. Some of the most advanced market-wise products are those that are based on plants. And uh, what you do there is you, in, in a way, um, concentrate plant proteins and add other, other materials that will give the texture and the feeling and the taste of real meat. And that there you have companies like Impossible or Beyond that are doing that kind of um, uh, work. On the other hand, which is a completely different approach, are people that are, they say, look, I mean, we can grow animal cells that are 
really in, in a way that they will taste like meat, they will perform like meat, but they will not come from an animal. And uh, those are the two different, and they don't cross each other. Um, they're not using the solutions of one uh, to feed the other. They're very different um, approaches. So let's talk a little bit about how these things are made specifically for the plant-based meat materials. What kind of plants are going in there? How are they being prepared? How are these patties or whatever other form of uh, meat product is being made? How are they actually getting made? Okay, so you first have to understand that plant proteins are very different than animal proteins. So what people are doing is trying to isolate the protein, let's say in soy or in peas, and in a way that you strip out most of the other parts of the plant uh, that are beneficial to, and you just isolate, and you produce something called a protein isolate, which has a high concentration of protein. That's the starting material. And for that, then you start adding flavor, and you start adding things like that will recreate what happens when you cook actual meat, and they will develop those flavors, and more things to give a structure, and you put carbohydrates there to fill that, you know, to make it not just protein, that will be the plant-based approach. All right. Now, the other variety that we want to discuss is cultured meat. So here we're actually talking about real living cells. Exactly. These are mammalian cells that are put in, um, as you said, uh, the introduction, a little bat there, and you grow them, you feed them, and they grow. And then um, they will recreate what a muscle meat, uh, how a muscle meat behaves, a real muscle meat. Now, this is being done at a very experimental level in very small quantities, and there, there is still a lot to go in terms of scaling up to an industrial operation. Right. So at this point, you can find some of the plant-based products out there. They are on the market. But uh, you were telling me before we turn these microphones on, even you haven't had the uh, cultured meat at this point. Exactly. I mean, cultured meat, now you can do some demos. And very selected people get invited to those demos and, uh, and, and, uh, because you, you can actually grow and prove the concept that you can grow the cells. The challenge is how are you going to grow these cells at a large scale to provide you know significant amount of, of these uh, meat cells um, at an economical price and that they have the structure of meat. Cells are not structured meat. They're different. I mean, a structured piece of meat has a lot of other components that gives them the structure. So right now we are at the cell level. Want to remind our listeners, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today we're discussing the future of meat as high-tech meat alternatives begin to make their way out of the labs and onto our dinner plates. We're speaking right now to Dr. Ricardo San Martin with the Alternative Meats Lab at UC Berkeley. So what could lie ahead for these two alternative meat varieties and, for that matter, traditional meat? Well, if you believe the good folks at A.T. Kearney Consultancy, our meat future will look very different from our meat present. The firm recently released a report that predicts that by 2040, cultured meat will make up 35% of meat consumed worldwide, while plant-based alternatives will compose 25%. If you're keeping track at home, that's more than half of all meat consumed by 2040 being made up of alternative meats. I asked Dr. San Martin if he thought the gains would be that dramatic. His answer? No. 
No. No. <laughs> Simple no. answer. Yeah. He says no, no because he sees some big challenges ahead for the technology. And let me prepare you right here. For all the advancements we've been hearing about, all the millions in investment, all the scientific breakthroughs, all the business opportunities that are opening up, for all that, Dr. San Martin still sees plenty of hurdles. So if you ever feel yourself getting too carried away in the alternative meat utopia dream, don't worry. The good doctor is here to keep us all nice and grounded. First, the hurdles that let's say, cell-grown meat half. They're immense. Starting with cultured meat, and we'll begin with some history. The first cultured beef burger was served up in 2013. It took several years along with several hundred thousand dollars to make. And since then, the cost of production has gone down a lot. But making cultured meat is still expensive. And the main limiting factor, sorry if this gets gross, is how many cells you can grow in a vat. Making a few? That's pretty easy. We've been growing cells for decades. It's the scaling up that's the challenge. And so here we're reaching not only like your wishful thinking of say, oh no, if you put more money and more brains there, we will get there. We are reaching the limits of biology. So there's so many cells that you can grow in a bat because they have to be oxygenated, they have to eat, they have not to kill each other. I mean, they have a program death kind of thing inside. So there's a, there's a number. So when you start reaching those numbers and still the equation, the cost equation doesn't fit, then people say, well, the only way out could be genetic engineering. You feeling that tug back down to earth? Well, there are optimists out there. And let's hear from one right now. Here once again is Bruce Friedrich, the executive director of the Good Food Institute. I asked him where he thinks this technology is headed. On the current trajectory where we have roughly 30 startups focused on um, commercializing cultured meat, we're probably a decade away from products that are cost competitive with beef um, and maybe even further away from cost competitive with other products. It's tough to know. I mean, if if Bill Gates decided he was going to put hundreds of millions of dollars into this, we could accelerate that um, cost curve pretty quickly. Uh, But similarly, China is looking at Um, huge, huge problems with food safety, with food security, uh, with water quality, with having enough water, uh, with having enough land. So if the Chinese government decided, um, and they should, that, hey, uh, commercializing clean meat is really the solution to these problems, and they decided to put billions of dollars into open source uh, research on the clean meat side, Uh, this could happen much, much more quickly. Once again, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. We're talking about the future of meat alternatives. And for the rest of the program, we're going to be taking on point by point the promises of this technology, as well as the challenges that may get in the way. First up, what we started the show with, the environmental promise. That is, you know, the idea that making our meat from plants will reduce the environmental impact of our food production. Here, we're going to focus on the plant-based variety of alternative meats because, well, this is the only kind actually on the market. 
We're going to continue with Bruce Friedrich of the Good Food Institute for this point. He says that if you do the life cycle analysis of these plant-based products, that is, if you look at all the resources that go into making each plant-based patty or sausage link and all the energy and power that it takes to ship everything to where it needs to be, it's clear the alternative products come out looking better than their traditional meat competitors. These products have a much, much, much lower environmental impact. Whatever issue you're talking about from water use to land use to loss of biodiversity to climate change um, to water pollution kind of across the environmental realm, the plant-based products are much, much less harmful than the animal-based products. Here again, though, Dr. San Martin is going to hit a note of caution for us. He says that far more independent studies are needed to really understand how these complex patties will get made and how many resources they'll consume. Well, it all depends where some of the raw materials come from. Uh, if they come from abroad, let's say you're doing coconut fat, in the, well, that has an environmental impact, bringing, bringing the fo- coconut fat to the, here to the U.S. or elsewhere. And, uh, and, then, and then you have the processing of each of the ingredients. So if the processing is done with certain energy input, with a certain CO2, you know, uh, production, all of that, you need detailed information to assess that. At the end of the day, he says, there is one diet to reduce your environmental impact that pretty much beats everything else. Honestly, if you want to limit your carbon footprint, eat beans. That's beans and rice. I mean, that would be my advice. If you're really concerned, you're not, you're, you're really concerned about your balance, your diet, you know, embrace beans. Beans and rice can't be beat. But that's really not the environmental goalpost for this conversation. The goalpost is, can you beat the environmental impact of livestock? And Bruce Friedrich says again, based on everything we know, the answer is yes for alternative meats. They may well not be as good as eating beans and rice, uh, but people are not eating Beyond Burgers and Impossible Burgers and these plant-based meats instead of beans and rice. They're eating the products instead of meat. And these products are just significantly better than choosing to eat meat, and they will get better and better. Okay, so that's promise number one, reducing the environmental impact of our food. But what about nutrition? Could there be health benefits to swapping out meat patties with the veggie variety? We'll hear from Dr. San Martin with UC Berkeley once again for this one. Is one of the goals in developing these plant-based alternative meats, are they trying to keep the nutritional profile similar to that of an actual burger? I mean, are they trying to make it have a certain amount of protein, make it have a certain amount of fat and, and all these other substances? Are they, are they keeping that in mind as they develop this food? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. I mean, doing it with plant substitute compared to animals, yes, they are. I mean, they are, they're concerned about that and they want uh, that you receive the same amount of protein or um, fat and all of that. Yeah. And so how does it stack up? Like, let's say that we had a fatty burger on the grill versus a plant burger. I mean, does it does it end up coming out better in terms of less fat, less cholesterol? Cholesterol, yes. Fat, it has to be product by product. Because, I mean, they do add fat. Because, you know, the fat, it's all, all the sensation in your mouth is related to the fat content. So they have to add fat. And some of them add, you know, coconut, coconut fat. It's, it's the perception sometimes that you think, oh, plants, you know, are healthier. But you have to always remind that what is going into this hamburger is not a plant. It's a fraction of the plant. It's a protein. It's not the micronutrients, the minerals, you know, the fibers. That's not there. 
right? I mean, that maybe in the lettuce you put, I mean, you add at the top, but it's not there. It's just a fraction of it. Yeah. And so, and you're eating carbohydrates with that because some of them have potato starch. So, so you, you it all depends what your health concerns are. But if someone is healthy and concerned, I don't think that person eats that many hamburgers a week. And after all, it's only as healthy as what you put onto it. So add the bun, add the ketchup, and well, you know what you're eating. One last time, I want to remind our listeners, you're listening to KCBS In-Depth. Today, we're taking a bite into the wild world of alternative meats as new technologies attempt to replace the meat on your dinner plate with something so close to meat, you might not even know the difference. Sticking with the question of nutrition, I asked David Lippman with Impossible Foods for his take on the nutrition of their products. I found the answer very interesting. He says, of course, they're always working to make the products more healthy. And with each new update of their burger, they've been reducing the fat, the sodium, the calories. But he added, at the end of the day, the point is to make something that consumers will choose over meat. And that means it's got to taste good. Look, we could make it as healthy as we want. And if you don't eat it, then it's not going to work, you know. Um, So deliciousness is really key. And... um, and uh, with a lot of food, I should say that, you know, um, there are foods that you can eat that are very unhealthy. And then as you start to move away from there, you know, the, the benefits, you know, in terms of healthier and healthier start to diminish. Um, so, so really what a key, there's some key things. We want to we wanna dramatically reduce certain things that are in our diet. But at a certain point, you're not going to get healthier and healthier. And, and, and again, the goal is to make something that's so delicious that people choose to eat this not as a sacrifice, but as something that's really uh, a reward. So we, we will not sacrifice deliciousness as long as we're convinced that we have a healthy product. Now, as we head to the end of our program, we're going to focus on our final challenge for alternative meats. And this last one is, in the view of Dr. San Martin with UC Berkeley, perhaps the biggest challenge of all. That is the challenge of culture. Because, as San Martin points out, food is linked very closely with culture, and some cultures just might not readily embrace meat 2.0. So if you go to any, I'm from Latin America, you go to any Latin American country and you say that, people will stare at you at the eyes and say, what are you talking about? You know what I mean? Like, why? Why should I go for a processed food if I have always, my grandparents, my grand-grandparents have been eating this way, and I love it. So the aspiration of this company is that the world is waiting for this. It's, it's, it's very questionable. It may happen in some geographical areas, in some affluent parts where people, you know, are concerned about this thing, have also the capacity to change, where food is not really a cultural experience. But I just, I told you, I was just recently in France and Spain. I, I don't see it. I mean, I'd be totally... Uh, totally um, blind, but I, ju- I just don't see the French eating um, cultured meat at, in a significant quantity. People eat meat now despite how it's produced, not because of how it's produced. That, once again, is Bruce Friedrich with the Good Food Institute. If you ask somebody um, in France, which is notoriously culinary, notoriously snob- snobby about food, if you tell them what's happening to chickens in France these days and the way that 
factory far- farming is industrializing. They don't know that that's happening. It's very much like what's happening here. Uh, if you ask your average consumer, would you want to eat chicken from an animal who grew seven times as quickly as chickens would naturally grow, um, everybody is going to say no to that question. If you describe what happens in a modern slaughterhouse and ask whether somebody wants to eat chicken from an animal who was treated that way, everybody's going to say no. People simply don't realize what's happening, and it's happening in South America and Europe uh, every bit as much as it's happening in North America. So when we have two products, and one of those products gives people uh, the exact same taste and texture and the things they like about eating meat as the other product, and it is less expensive, and it is safer because it doesn't suffer from the bacterial contamination or, in the case of fish, uh, heavy metal and mercury contamination, folks are going to shift over. And let's bring David Lipman, the chief science officer of Impossible Foods, back into the conversation one last time. I asked him, given all these daunting challenges, whether or not there might be some upper limit to how far this food technology could really go. I mean, you know, do you ask physicians who are doing biomedical research on something I was involved in for many years, gee, is there some diseases that are too hard to study that we should not bother? I mean, you know, is, uh, is cancer too hard to solve so we won't do it? Is, is uh, our autoimmune disease is just so challenging that we, we, just, we should just give up? Um, absolutely, this, these are easier problems. Making delicious plant-based meats is an easier problem than trying to solve a lot of the things that we're doing in biomedical research now. And if we look at how much improvement we were able to have between our first version of the product and the second, it really tells us that there's a long ways to go here. So I don't think there's a limit. I'm going to give the last word to Dr. San Martin. I asked him if these alternative meats progressed, as Lipman hopes they will, could they address some of the cultural concerns we raised earlier? San Martin insists this is the wrong question to be asking. And so do you still have a sense of hope that this technology will be able to solve some of these problems? I don't think the starting point is technology. I think the starting point is to understand human behaviors around food. It's understanding what this is about meanings. It's, technology sometimes doesn't give you meaning. It's just how useful it is. But this is about meaning, and food is about meaning. So if you think this is a technology that will replace another technology, no, because, you know, food is all about what it means to you, what it reminds you. I mean, the smell, uh, what your mother cooked or your father cooked or whoever, you know, it's all about, you know, community. So, so it's more than the technology. If we get it right to what people, you know, what are the meaning meanings of, let's say, meat in their diets. So it, I don't think... The starting point is technology here. It's profound human understanding around food. And from there, if technology can help us, fantastic. We have the starting point of our program and everything is understanding these behaviors and seeing, okay, now that you have these behaviors and we know what this food means for you, will you be willing to change your behavior with this other alternative? Will you embrace this other option? What will make you embrace that other option? And it will come from emotions, it will come from textures, it will come from something that is very human. It will not come because I'm telling you this is a super technology. The starting point is is our human behavior. 
our, our strange and sometimes weird human behavior. You've been listening to In Depth. Today on the program, you've heard from Bruce Friedrich. He's the executive director of the Good Food Institute. David Lipman, the chief science officer of Impossible Foods. And Dr. Ricardo San Martin, research director for the Alternative Meats Lab at the Sudarta Center for Entrepreneurship and Technology at UC Berkeley. That's going to do it for the program today. Remember, you can find past episodes online at kcbsradio.com, on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Signing off for KCBS and In-Depth, I'm Keith Manconi. Thanks for listening. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9 KCBS. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile Essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.